can go ahead and have a seat and join me in praying to this great God we've been singing about and to. Well, great God, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our praise in this moment, in this hour, in this building. You're worthy of the praise of all of our lives. You're worthy to be praised. You are greatly to be praised. And we pray that you would fit us to give you the praise that you deserve. Fit us for a life of worship and adoration and joy towards you. Lord, we thank you so much for what you have done to redeem us, to call us out of darkness into your light, to adopt us as your own dear children, to redeem us from our sin. We thank you for what you have done to regenerate and change our hearts. We thank you for what you've done to mature us, sanctify us. We thank you for what you've done to bring us to this moment as we look into your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be free of distractions in this moment, that we would be able to focus on you and your word, that we would be able to look into your word and apply its truth to our lives, that we would see you as you are, that we would, that we would love you more because of what we see about you, that we would treasure you more, that we would, that we would fall out of love with the stuff of this world, and we would see you as worthy of all our praise. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us from your word, that you would help me to make clear and plain the meaning of your word, that your truth would be planted deep in our hearts. We need you for that. And so Lord, would you come and, and make this a holy moment in our lives as we look into your word, as we listen to your voice, as we seek to apply your truth to our lives. We need your help now in this moment. Speak to us. Lord, your servants are listening to you now. We pray you'd speak to us in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. I hope you brought a Bible with you. If you did, turn with me to the little letter of James. It's toward the end of the New Testament, the book of James. If you didn't bring a copy of Scripture with you, hopefully you can find one of the black Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. You can find the book of James. We're going to focus on verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 this morning, but I want to read all of verses 2 through 18 of chapter 1 to sort of get us a running start and remind us of what we have been studying. So we've been studying the book of James just a chunk at a time, and we have looked at verses 2 through 4, and we've looked at verses 5 through 11, and now we're going to look at verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1. And so let's read, beginning in verse 2. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. This is the word of God. May God write its truth on our hearts. So beginning in verse 2, James has been teaching us to have the right perspective in the midst of trials. When we meet trials, we're to meet them with a certain perspective. Trials, he says, are designed by God for our good. And so we should respond to them with all joy. Of course, to do that, we need God's wisdom to see trials in this way, to see it from His perspective. And so in verse 5, James urges us to ask God, to plead with God for wisdom because God is the generous giver of wisdom to those who ask in faith. Well, our passage this week, beginning in verse 12, is going to continue to build on this right perspective of trials in our minds and hearts. The particular burden of this passage, of these verses, is that a right perspective of trials is about knowing the character and the glory of our God. James helps us see that the more familiar we are with who God is, the better our perspective of trials will be. In other words, the character, the attributes, the glory of our God is immensely practical to us when we suffer. When we suffer, there's nothing more practical to know than who our God is. Our obedience to God, our joy in God, our witness for God in the midst of trials will be in direct proportion to our knowledge of God. You must know God. You must know Him as He is. You must know Him intimately. You must be captivated by Him and His beauty, particularly as He's revealed Himself in the person and work of Jesus. If you're ever going to respond with joy in the midst of suffering that comes your way. Perhaps the reason why our response to trials is so wimpy, is so weak, is because we've just thought of God as a, just a little bit better version of ourselves. 
And James challenges us in this passage to have the right perspective of trials by considering them in light of the awesome character of our God. And so I want to draw out three truths about God that James highlights for us here. There are more than three truths, but I'm going to consolidate them under these three truths. These are truths that should help us suffer well. That's what James is getting at here in chapter 1. He wants us to suffer well. Trials are going to come. We are going to experience the suffering in this broken, fallen world. And James wants us to have the right perspective of trials so that we suffer well. These truths about God should help us suffer well. First, number one, our gracious God rewards those who endure. Know this about your God. He is a gracious God who rewards those who endure. Look at verse 12 again. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, that is, when he has endured, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Notice the connection between verse 12 and back in verse 3. Remember in verse 3, we were told that trials produce steadfastness. And verse 12, we're told that great blessings come to those who actually do remain steadfast. Trials produce endurance, and endurance is eternally blessed by God. And so verse 12 is another strong indication of the design of God for us in the midst of the trials that we encounter. God is working something in us. He's working endurance so that He can bless us, reward us when we endure to the end. Now, obviously, verse 12 is pointing toward eternal rewards, not temporary rewards. This is what's pointing to us eternal joy, not just temporary, fleeting joys. And so notice what the reward is according to James. What is the reward? What does God promise to those who endure? He promises the crown of life. The crown of of life. And before we consider what is this crown of life, notice who gives the crown of life. Who is it that supplies, who promises the crown of life? Well, clearly verse 12 tells us that it is God who has promised the crown of life to those who love Him. What is the crown of life? Well, I'm not exactly sure what James has in mind when he thinks of the crown of life, but I think probably it's a summary of the entire experience of eternity as God's child. The crown of life is meant to be a symbol for all of the precious gifts that were purchased by the blood of Christ that we will enjoy for all eternity. This is what God gives those who endure to the end. We see this crown several other times in Scripture. For example, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 the Savior says to the church in Smyrna, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful to the end. Persevere through the suffering, through the persecution that you're, experience, that you're experiencing, and I will give you the crown of life. 
2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, Paul is bursting with anticipation at the thought of receiving the reward of God. And he says it this way. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In other words, I've endured. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which, which I take to be synonymous with the crown of life, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so remaining steadfast in trials and enduring to the end is rewarded by God abundantly in eternity. Is the crown of life, this crown of righteousness, is that something you're looking forward to? Is that something you're longing for? As you endure the suffering of life, are you, are you, do you have your eyes fixed on the crown God has promised? Now notice the connection in James 1.12 between enduring and loving. James says that God has promised the crown of life to those who love Him. That is, to those who remain steadfast to the end. It's those who love God who will endure the trials of this life. Loving God has everything to do with persevering and enduring and ultimately receiving the promised rewards of God. You see, here's the point. We don't mainly need life hacks or eight steps to enduring trials in this life. Friends, what we need is a glimpse of the glory and majesty of the God who is worth loving with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. We need to see God as He's revealed Himself in the person of Jesus so that we can fall madly in love with Him. Because it's love for God that will fuel our endurance for God no matter what comes our way in this life. And in verse 12, James is motivating us by the promise of God to bless those who endure to the end. When we keep our minds on the joys of eternal fellowship with God, the crown of life, we will be enabled to endure the trials we encounter knowing that God is a rewarder, knowing that God is a promise keeper should fuel us to endure through whatever suffering comes our way. And so James says, when you suffer, remember the God who rewards. Remember the God who promises the crown of life to those who endure. Set your mind on things above and endure with steadfastness. Here's how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is one of the hardest things to do in the midst of trials. One of the hardest things to do in the midst of suffering is to look at things that are unseen. Because in trials, our temptation is to look at only what we can see and feel and touch. And James says, no, look, look to the eternal reward. Look to the crown of life in the midst of your trial because this trial is producing steadfastness and God is the rewarder of steadfastness. Our gracious God rewards those who endure. And so don't waste your trials. 
Don't waste your suffering. Endure trials with joy, knowing that the crown of life awaits you. And of course, we don't earn any reward from God. Of course, it is all purchased by the blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the second truth about God that I want to show you in this passage. Number two, our holy God does not tempt anyone to sin. Our holy God does not tempt anyone to sin. So look at verse 13. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. And so James has been talking about trials that are designed by God for our good. But beginning in verse 13, James discusses temptations to sin. Now, I think James shifts focus here, but he intentionally uses words that have the same root. So the word trial in verse 12 and in verse 2 comes from the same root word as the word temptation in verse 13. So James shifts focus, but he intentionally uses the, the same root word to highlight something I think that we all know. We all know this, don't we? Trials often turn into temptations. Trials often turn into temptations. Every trial carries with it the possibility of plunging into sin. For example, someone who's struggling with their physical health is tempted to complain about their circumstances. Someone who is struggling with financial difficulties is tempted to steal or to use ungodly means to gain wealth. Many are tempted to anger or bitterness when plans don't go like they expected them to go. The temptations always follow close behind our trials. When we encounter trials, we should expect there to be temptation to follow, to accompany now, it seems like James is writing to people who are blaming God for their temptations. You can see the logic, can't you? If God sends trials and trials carry temptations, then God is responsible for these temptations that I'm experiencing. God is responsible for my sin. God, it's your fault. But verse 13 could not be more emphatic. Notice James says, let no one say, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why? For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And so James says God is not the author of temptation to sin. James is addressing here the universal human tendency to blame others for our sin. Right? In the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God. God comes to Adam and asks why you ate the forbidden fruit. And Adam says, the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit. In other words, God, it's, it's your fault. God, if you hadn't given me the woman, I wouldn't have sinned against you. Irrefutable evidence of human depravity exists in the evil of looking for someone else to blame for our sin. And we are so evil that we would even blame God. How arrogant of us to blame God for our temptation and our sin. You see what James is doing? He is serving us here by teaching us about the nature and the character of God. 
God sends trials into our life for our good, to mature us. God tests our faith in order to strengthen our faith. But He is not the author of temptation or sin. God's design in sending trials into His people's life is always for their good. His design is never to cause us to sin. Notice that James gives two proofs of this point. First, God cannot be tempted with evil. And secondly, He Himself tempts no one. God cannot be tempted with evil. means that God's nature is so pure, so unmixed in holiness, that it is impossible for Him to be deceived into tempting His children. God's holiness and God's purity ensure that God is never even slightly tempted by evil. Secondly, He Himself tempts no one. It's the most emphatic way to say that God has such unmixed goodness toward His people that there is no room in His motives or in His actions for anything that would bring spiritual harm to His people. He would never sense harm to His people. God's goal is always to build faith in His people. Never does God seek to destroy faith in His children. And so if we cannot blame God for temptations to sin, who should we blame? Who is responsible for the sin in our lives? Well, James leaves absolutely no doubt as to who's responsible. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James teaches us who's not responsible for temptations in verse 13. God. God's not responsible. But who is responsible in verse 14? We are. James places the responsibility for temptation and sin squarely on our shoulders. In fact, verses 14 and 15 are among the most clear in the entire Bible of the reality of indwelling sin. There lies within every human heart wickedness, rebellion, and depravity. The enemy is inside all of us. We cannot cannot stress the importance of this point too strongly in the culture in which we live. We live in a world where we are taught to have a victim mentality. Right? Modern psychology has taught us that we are the way we are Because of outside influences. We are the victim of our circumstances. It's someone else's fault that I am the way I am. It's someone else's fault that I I am who I am. We didn't have the right set of circumstances. We didn't have the right support growing up. Our culture teaches us we got to get over that by believing in ourselves and digging deep to find the goodness in our hearts. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, I know that no good thing dwells in my flesh. No good thing dwells in my flesh. Friends, we are not just deprived, which is what our culture teaches us. We didn't have the right set of circumstances. We're deprived. Not just deprived, we're depraved. There is evil and wickedness in the very core of our being. Early in the 20th century, the London Times newspaper ran a series of articles on the subject, what's wrong with the world? Can you imagine a series of articles today written with that subject? What's wrong with the world? How many different opinions 
are out there about what is wrong with the world today. Well, they ask many prominent authors to contribute essays to this series of articles, and they ask a Christian by the name of G.K. Chesterton. And here's the article that Chesterton submitted regarding the question, what's wrong with the world? He wrote, quote, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. I am the biggest problem in the world today. That sounds like, it sounds like hyperbole, doesn't it? It sounds like that's way over the top. Are you sure? I mean, there's a lot of stuff wrong with the world today. No, I'm the biggest problem. My evil desires that give birth to sin and death are the problem. Notice the shocking and graphic description of indwelling sin in verses 14 and 15. This is a terrifying picture of what happens in our hearts. James says we're lured and enticed. These are fishing metaphors. Right? Everyone knows how fishing works, right? You bait the hook, you, you put something that the fish will like on the hook, and you disguise the hook so that the fish bites the bait and is hooked. That's exactly what sin does in our lives, doesn't it? It disguises itself as attractive. It appeals to our evil desires, but rarely does sin ever reveal its hooks. And verse 15 says that desire gives birth to sin, and sin brings forth death. And so the mother of sin is desire, our wicked desires, and the child that desires bears is sin. And sin, when it's grown up, reveals itself as death, and destruction, James says. This is a description of what happens in our hearts daily. We are tempted by our own desires to embrace things that are displeasing to God, and those things lead to death. And so James says, stop blaming others for your sin, especially God, and start taking responsibility for your own depravity. It is only when we understand just how evil we really are, that we will ever begin to appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. If you spend your whole life defending your own goodness and your own righteousness, you'll never appreciate what Jesus accomplished when he died on that cross. Because on that cross, Jesus bore the very death that our sins have brought forth. He bore the very death and destruction that our sins gave birth to. He bore the very death that our desires, that our twisted and evil and wicked desires deserve. And it's the death of Jesus on the cross that is the only way that we can understand what James says next. Think about what he's just said. He's just said, you're wicked, you're evil, it's your desires that make temptations even attractive. It's your desires that give birth to sin, and it's your sin that gives birth to death. And look what he's about to say in verses 16, 17, and 18. He says, number three, our generous God is the giver of all good gifts. Our generous God is the giver of all Good gifts. So hear the pleading passion of James in verse 16. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. The possibility of deception is so real here that we must guard against it, James says, at all costs. 
Well, what are we not to be deceived about? Well, I think this applies to both what he's just said and what he's about to say. So don't be deceived. God is not the author of temptation. God does not tempt anyone. But also don't be deceived because God is the giver of all good gifts. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, our own evil desires lead us to blame God and think that He is withholding good things from us because of our trials. That's what suffering causes us to do. Suffering causes us to look to God and say, why are you withholding good from me, God? Why have you sent this bad thing, this this very wicked thing into my life that's causing me all this pain and all this sorrow? But James says, no, no. God only gives good gifts to His children. God is not the author of temptation to sin. God doesn't sin. He tempts no one. He's the giver of every good and every perfect gift. And so friends, verses 17 and 18, these verses are filled with life-altering truth that we need to have ears to hear. Oh God, give us ears to hear the truth in verses 17 and 18. And so let me draw your attention to five precious truths from verses 17 and 18. I want you to write these down. Grab a pencil from the rack. The back of the bulletin has a section for notes. Find some scrap piece of paper to write these because... Because we need to remember these truths in trials. If we could just remember these truths about our God in the midst of trials, we would be helped to endure to the end. Five precious truths. Number one, every good thing we have is given to us by God. Do you believe that? Every good thing we have is given to us by God. Notice James' emphasis on the word every. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Surely he doesn't mean all of them, right? Surely, surely there are good things that we experience that God hasn't sent. And James says, no, every one of them, every good gift, every perfect gift is from God. Now, James is being clear that we have never experienced anything good apart from the graceful giving of God. We have nothing good that is not from God. And we will never experience anything good in all eternity apart from the generous God who gives all good gifts. Listen, you have never earned anything good you have. It's all blood-bought and graciously given to you by God. Think about what you do deserve. You deserve wrath. We deserve punishment and evil, but God has given us millions and millions of good things by His grace. Your family, your job, your house, your friends, your knowledge, your food, your church, your Bible, and your relationship with God all purchased by Jesus Christ. Christians, we ought to be grateful people if this is true. We ought to be 10,000 times more grateful than anyone else around us because we are the ones who have benefited so abundantly from the gracious giving of our God. We should be the least likely people to murmur and complain when trials arise in our lives. Take the advice of the old hymn. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. 
Every good thing we have is given to us by God. Here's the second truth I want you to see. God only gives good gifts to his children. God only gives good gifts to his children. Now listen, this point is not explicit in verse 17, but I think the whole context of this passage is pressing us at this truth. God does not tempt toward evil. That is, God doesn't give bad things. God doesn't give evil to his children. He only gives good gifts to his people. And even if it's not explicit right here in verse 17, we know other places in the scripture that it is explicit, like Romans 8.28, right? Nothing that God ordains or allows for his children is bad. He works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. See, ultimately, God has never given anything evil to those who trust in Christ as Savior. Never. No Christian has ever asked God for bread and been given a snake. God only gives good gifts to His children. And so never, ever question the goodness of God to you if you are in Christ. Number three, God is generous with His good gifts to us. Not only does every good thing come from Him, and not only does He only give good gifts, but He is generous with His good gifts to us. Now this point is obvious if we just look at our lives, but notice it in the text. It's found in this participle translated as coming down from. You see that phrase, coming down from, in verse 17. This is a present participle that implies repeated, continuous action. The idea is a waterfall that never runs dry. His good gifts continually rain down from Him. God continually, repeatedly, tirelessly, consistently, unceasingly, eternally lavishes these good gifts on us. We saw this in relation to wisdom last week in verse 5. God is not stingy with His blessing. He is a generous giver. He is a generous God. Number four, the God who gives all good gifts is powerful and does not change. The God who gives all these good and precious gifts is powerful and He does not change. Change. Notice how James describes our generous God in verse 17. He is described as the Father of lights. I think this is probably a reference to God's creative power. God is the creator of the heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. He is the powerful God of creation is what James is saying. And notice, with Him, there is no variation or shadow Due to change, James is saying, unlike everything else in the universe, God does not change. He is immutable in his being and in his ways. And so what does this have to do with God being the giver of all good gifts? Well, think about it. If God is powerful enough to create everything by just speaking words, then we can have confidence that nothing will get in the way of His relentless passion to bless His children with every good and perfect gift. And since He doesn't change, we never have to worry about Him changing His favor toward us if we are believing in Jesus. 
God's not like that family member, you know, that one family member we all have who gives you good gifts if you give them good gifts and bad gifts if you give them bad gifts. <laughs> the very character of God gives us confidence to expect every good gift and only good gifts for all eternity. Romans 8.32 is the key verse on this point. I want you to memorize this. If you don't have Romans 8.32 memorized, it's time. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now think about the logic of that verse. The logic of Romans 8.32 is from the greater to the lesser. Right? He says, if the Father crushed His Son for our sins, that's the greater thing, right? That's the ultimate thing. If the Father put His Son to death for us, then you can be confident that He will do the lesser thing. Give us good gifts. If God crushed His only Son, you can bet that He will fulfill His promise to give every good and perfect gift to His children. Here's the fifth and the final truth. The best of all God's good gifts to us is the new birth through Jesus. The best of all the good and perfect gifts that God has given is the new birth through Jesus. And so I see verse 18 as the supreme example of the good gifts God gives to His children. Notice James is giving us an example of what God gives to His children. In fact, notice the contrast between verse 15 and verse 18. In verse 15, we learn that sin gives birth to death. In verse 18, we see what God gives birth to. What does God give birth to? God gives birth to fruit. He gives His people the new birth so that they will be the first fruits of His creatures. God has made us to be first fruits, which I think means we are redeemed to be a demonstration that He keeps His promises. God has brought us forth. He has set us apart for His purposes, purposes that are going to culminate with the redemption of all creation, and we are the first fruits of that. But notice the basis of the new birth. How were we brought forth? Of His own will. He brought us forth. Of His own will, He gave us the new birth. Listen, we did not choose to be born again. Just like we did not choose to be born physically, we didn't choose to be born spiritually. Regeneration is not our work. It was God's sovereign pleasure to make us His children. He did this by His own will. And this is incredibly good news to us because I would never have decided on my own to be born again. Behind and before our faith in Jesus is the gracious gift of God to save us. And notice the instrument that God uses to bring forth the new birth. James says He brought us forth how? By the Word of truth. God uses means to accomplish His purposes and the means He uses is His truth to regenerate our hearts. The Word of Truth is the message that Jesus fully obeyed His Father in every way. He willingly laid down His life for the sins of His people and He rose victoriously on the third day. And that if we acknowledge that we are sinners 
And that only Christ can save us. We can have eternal and abundant life in Him. God uses this message, the message of the Gospel, to give new birth to His children. And so if you're a Christian, it's because God did this for you. If you're a Christian, it's because God did verse 18 in your life. He brought you forth by the word of truth that you would be a trophy of His generosity. That you would display His kindness to all of creation. So church family, what a God. What an awesome God. Did these truths not propel you to endure through the midst of suffering and trial? That if we really were to believe this is who our God is, we can endure whatever He sends our way. Verses 17 and 18, though, they're a loud call to extreme gratefulness in our lives. Friends, we don't deserve anything good at all. In fact, we deserve only wrath all the time for eternity. And yet, we experience thousands and thousands of good gifts from God every single day. And so these truths should mold us into thankful people. Let's let God's generosity, let's let His generous giving of good gifts to us free us from our woe-is-me attitudes. Because friends, if you're a Christian, no matter what you think you lack, you're always doing better than you deserve. Christian, be absolutely sure that God is for you today. He is for you because Jesus died for your sins and He clothes you with His own righteousness. And all God's plans for you are only good. All His plans are only good. See, trials are not going to come into your life and announce that they are good for you. In fact, just the opposite. Trials are going to come and they're going to say, look, look at you. Look how much God hates you. Look how much you've done that caused all of this. Trials will seem like they're intended to crush you. You're going to be tempted to doubt God's goodness hundreds of times if you live long enough. And so we need to decide right here and right now that whatever happens to us, we're going to trust the character and glory of our God. We're going to lean in to who our God is. No matter what trials come in my life, God is good and I am, by God's grace, going to rest on His goodness to me in Christ. Let's pray that He'll make that true in us. Oh God, help us. We need You. The reality is we are weak and we are frail and we will turn away from You at every chance we get. We need You to hold us fast, oh God. We need You to bind us like a fetter to You. Would You do that, Lord? Would You bind us to You in such a way that we would trust in Your goodness no matter what suffering comes our way? Because you are good and you do good. And every good and perfect gift is from you. And so we thank you. We want to be grateful people. We want to grow in gratefulness in this moment, Lord. When we say amen, we want to be, we want to be people who see your good gifts and give you thanks and live lives of gratefulness to you for all that you have done for us in Jesus. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. Thank you for the new birth. Thank you for causing us to be born again through the word of truth. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.